It's money they want, cyber criminals and fraudsters of all types. To get a better handle on the latest risks and mitigation strategies, the Association of Government Accountants and Consultancy Guidehouse surveyed AGA members with highlights of what they discovered. The Guidehouse partner for public sector financial services, Caitlin McGurn. Ms. McGurn, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Now, you did this study in with the Association of Government Accountants. Is fraud and that type of abuse actually the purview of the accounting function in government or is it should it be the program and the inspector general and somebody else? So Tom, the way I look at it, it really should be a collaboration between the entities that you just described. So the accounting function certainly has a role when it comes to fraud, but all of those parties need to work together to make sure that it's properly mitigated. And what did you find that respondents felt were the biggest contributors to fraud? What were their concerns here? So I would say, one, the pandemic is certainly contributing to the increase in fraud risk that we're seeing. The other thing that's really trending towards the increase is the increased sophistication of fraudsters, their use of technology, their use of cyber crimes to ultimately implement the fraud schemes that they've developed. And when we step back and take a look at things right now, with the pandemic, and if you think about the fraud triangle, you have the three points, opportunity, pressure, rationalization. And really what the pandemic did was put it put an opportunity to increase each one of those three points. And I wanted to ask you about one detail in the study, again, looking just at the executive kind of overview here. Data sharing, that has been a important imperative for government. You know, we date it back to 9-11, but even before that, on the security front, on the fraud and making sure that there is program integrity front, what is the role of data sharing? What data and who do you share it with? You know, it's interesting that you bring up 9-11. When we approached the survey, what we did is we actually issued a a true survey. We had over 300 respondents. Once we got those responses back, we actually conducted a number of deep dive qualitative interviews. Data sharing came up in almost every one of those interviews, and many individuals compared it back to the pre-9-11 days. And what we discussed was that within the government, it could be federal, state, or local, data resides in a number of different sources, different formats. So there are a number of barriers right now to data sharing. It could be the format, it could be the quality and cleanliness of the data, but it also could just be a lack of connection points and or legislation that prevents the sharing of that data. If we can overcome those obstacles, that will greatly increase our ability to fight fraud at all levels of government. And let's back up for just a moment. Is it the opinion of the people that you surveyed, these government accountant types of folks, the financial function, that fraud is on the rise? It is. So what we found is that 53% of our respondents believe that fraud is on the rise. What's interesting about this is we conducted the survey in March of 2021. Since then, there have been an increased number of pandemic relief-related programs. So I imagine that if we reissued that question today, that number would be even higher. Yes, there's a strong sense that the money was flowing and the programs developed much faster than the oversight and control mechanisms could actually be developed and put in place. Is that a fair way to say that they felt that way also? I'd say that's fair. And I think in some situations, it was, as you stated, it was moving so quickly that they were not able to put those control mechanisms in place in time. In other situations, there was an intentional decision to scale some of those back to increase the speed at which the funds were getting out the door. 
In either situation, what that impacts is the fraud prevention piece of the puzzle. What we can do now is we can focus on the fraud detection piece. And one of the best ways for us to do this is to utilize technology so that we can get greater coverage and find those those instances where funds went out the door in a way that they shouldn't have and hopefully be able to claw those back. We're speaking with Caitlin McGurn. She's a partner for Public Sector Financial Services at GuideHouse. So the idea of detection then takes tools for detection, and that brings us back to data sharing. Isn't detection highly dependent on data analysis nowadays? It's not something you can look at on spreadsheets. Absolutely. What I would say is that data sharing increases our ability to more efficiently and effectively execute the fraud detection, and even at times the fraud prevention aspect of fraud fraud management. We can get around it with the situation that we have. It's just going to take a greater level of effort, but that actually comes back to one of the constraints that we found in the survey, and that's, that's resource constraints, resources in terms of both people and budgetary funds. So addressing the data sharing issue is a great way to be able to lower the level of effort needed to effectively manage fraud risk. Does the government have any sort of metrics? Are there any industry metrics on if a given amount of dollars is devoted to a program in terms of the benefits, a billion dollars to help restaurants get out of trouble? Is there any kind of ratio for administrative cost that should accompany that billion dollars to ensure that the money is overseen properly and to prevent fraud? That's a great question, Tom. I don't believe there's anything at the centralized government level. I could be wrong on that. Um, I know individual agencies are trying to, to look at those metrics and manage and assess how their programs are doing in that regard. Now, you did have some good case histories throughout this report that showed that you can have some wins, any successful strategies that you identified that could be shared with across government. Yeah, absolutely. One of the themes that really came out for us was training and communication. And I'm going to cover this in two regards. So one, training and communication in terms of making the most of the human capital resources that you have getting them in the right training so that they can stay up to speed related to current fraud trends, current fraud schemes, making sure that they are armed appropriately to be able to do their jobs as effectively as possible. And then I would also look at training as it pertains to technology. Technology is not a silver bullet, but what we found is that it can help programs be more efficient and effective. At GuideHouse, we work with both public sector and private sector clients And we've seen the adoption of technology at a much greater pace on the commercial side of things. And so we know that it does work and ultimately reducing that level of effort. But one of the things we've taken from the commercial side is the importance of training. You can't just implement a technology, set it and forget it. You need to make sure that you invest in it and train your your human capital individuals so that they know how to best use that technology. Now, the AGA has developed, I imagine, in conjunction with GuideHouse, a fraud prevention toolkit. What's in that toolkit? GuideHouse can't take credit for the toolkit. That is is something that AGA has available. And I'm, I'm really excited that our survey is now part of that toolkit. The toolkit has best practices, guides, all of which are free and available to individuals that they can use to help with their programs. One of the other things that we came out with as a best practice here is that anyone in the organization that has fraud responsibilities can make an impact on their fraud program. And they can do it with simple, small, incremental steps. And leveraging AGA's Fraud Prevention Toolkit is a great way to get that started. And if you would, maybe just run quickly through the six steps to fortifying your fraud management program. The first one is really focused on your fraud risk assessment. 
What we found is that fraud risk assessments are key to making sure that your program is appropriately aimed. And a lot of times when you do experience resource constraints, you have time constraints, what you do, you skip that, you go with what you know, but then what you're doing is your program is aimed incorrectly. So doing those fraud risk assessments more frequently and making sure that they're done accurately is going to be very important. One of the other things that we found is agency culture is significant in terms of the impact that it has on the fraud risk management program. When it comes to agency culture, tone at the top is going to make a big difference. So making sure that the fraud risk program is being promoted by senior leaders. And best practice number three. Training is going to be really important because fraud is ever-changing. We're seeing it evolve at a faster pace than we've ever seen before. So that training and that communication is really going to help programs make the most. Additionally, incremental changes can quickly help with agencies' fraud prevention and detection efforts. Anyone should feel empowered to be able to take things here and make an improvement. We also talked about technology. Technology is one of the things that really surprised me in this survey is nearly one third of respondents don't leverage technology in any capacity. There are a variety wow. of technologies that can be used. Yeah, I was I was pretty startled by that. There are a variety of technologies that can be used and they range across the spectrum from very low cost and effort implement, implementation. So we're talking RPA to higher cost of implementation. So there are small incremental steps as it pertains to technology as well that can have significant benefits. And then lastly, no one needs to reinvent the wheel. As you mentioned, there are resources out there that individuals can use to see what's going on in the space, see what the best practices are, and figure out how to apply those to their unique situation. All right, people, so get on the stick. Caitlin McGurn is the partner for Public Sector Financial Services at Guidehouse. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was great. We'll post this interview plus a link to that survey report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life and um, 
it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. 
What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.